Let's take our Bibles together, if we could, and turn to the passage that Paul just read, 2 Thessalonians. Just a quick announcement, too, as we get started this morning before we turn our attention to 2 Thessalonians. In two weeks from today, March 10th, I'm going to start a new series on the Gospel of John called The Road to Resurrection. So I want you all to know about that and plan on that. We will be returning to the Gospel of John, uh, and that will lead us right up to Easter Sunday and to Good Friday. So I look forward to returning to the Gospel of John with you. If you remember, we finished up John 17 a few months back, and so we're coming back to this Gospel, looking at those last few chapters, and uh, looking at the resurrection, which is this great event that we celebrate is the foundation of our salvation. So plan on that. Two weeks from today, back in John's Gospel, March 10th, we'll finish up that great book. Now for today, what I want to do is finish up our time in Second Thessalonians. And it's with a tear in my eye that we say goodbye to Second Thessalonians today. It's been a good journey. Last September, we began a journey uh, through the book of First Thessalonians. And then in January, we continued in Second Thessalonians. And today we finish our study of these two great books of the New Testament with a few final words from the Apostle Paul. Paul gives us final encouragement, he gives us a final command, and then he gives us a final prayer. As we look back on these two books of the New Testament, I'll just summarize here. We see an incredible array of theological and practical instruction from Paul. Paul has lectured the church on how to press through persecution. In Thessalonica, Paul has explained why the church should press through persecution in Thessalonica. Paul has taught the church about how to live a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is devoid of sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, devoid of idleness, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. We looked at that last week. Paul has expounded on great truths involving Christ's second coming, the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, that cataclysmic day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, also the eternal destiny of unbelievers, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12, and even the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Paul has told the Thessalonians how to love each other, how to follow their leaders, how to press on with endurance, how to live quietly and work hard. There's a lot in these books, a lot of good stuff for us. And there's a lot of, Paul, there's a lot of prayer from Paul. Paul has prayed that for the Thessalonians, God would make them worthy of his calling. You can read this on the screen. And fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So with all of this good stuff in our rear view mirror, we come to the last six verses of 2 Thessalonians that close rather simply. 
Paul gives one final encouragement. Paul gives one final command and then a final prayer, and that's it. You know, what happens next in Thessalonica with this church is it's lost to history. We don't know what happens next. We don't know if they, some repent. We don't know what happens to the church. We have snippets of that in church history. But, but we don't know. Paul's letters and his instructions, though, even though that's lost, his instructions to this church continue, continue to inform and edify. Even churches like, for example, Harvest Decatur in Decatur, Illinois, are edified by these words. Just a reminder, I try to remind you of this often, the Holy Spirit co-wrote and preserved these words from Paul so that we could be edified in our day. And we have been. We have been. And we will be one more time this morning as we look at the final words of 2 Thessalonians. So here we go, here's your outline for today. Final encouragement, a final command, a final prayer. Here's Paul's final encouragement to the church. It's this, Harvest Decatur. Don't quit on doing good. Don't quit on doing good. Paul says in verse 13, as for you, brothers. Remember brothers, that's a technical term for believers in Jesus Christ, okay? We are children of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. So we are brothers and sisters in this room. Those who have embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ as the children of God. And Paul addressing these brothers, he says, as for you brothers, as for you believers, as for you Christians, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. The Greek word for grow weary here is the word enkakeo. And that word can indicate both physical and emotional exhaustion. More often than not in the New Testament, it refers to emotional exhaustion. That's why it's often translated loose heart. Maybe you've heard that before. You could translate you can translate 2 Thessalonians 3.13, do not lose heart in doing God. good. Do not lose heart. Do not grow weary. That would be a perfectly appropriate way to translate this verse. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not inkakeo. We do not lose heart. God gave us this ministry. Paul says in Galatians 6.9, and let us not grow weary inkakeo of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up, Christian. Don't give up in the doing of good. Jesus taught his disciples the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. Y'all remember that parable? The widow kept hassling and bothering the judge again and again and again until finally the, the judge relents and grants her request. Why did Jesus teach that parable? What was he trying to teach his disciples? Well, Luke tells us. He taught it so that his disciples would always pray and not inkakeo, not lose heart, not give up, not stop praying. Let me ask you, Harvest Decatur, are you, you can answer this honestly, you can nod your head. Are you tempted sometimes to give up as a Christian? Give up in the doing of good? Paul wrote this for you. The Holy Spirit preserved this for you. Don't quit. 
Don't stop doing good. I mean, do you ever feel like, man, you know, I'm tired of sharing my faith. It's like every time I do, it doesn't work quite like I thought it would. And I'm tired of living out my faith in front of the world and receiving the slings and arrows of the enemy for my faithfulness in that way. I'm tired of coming to church on Sunday and listening to Pastor Tony's sermons. If you felt that way, I don't blame you. I get kind of tired of hearing myself preach sermons sometimes. And that's why Paul says repeatedly in the New Testament, don't stop. Don't quit. Don't lose heart. Don't stop following Christ. Don't stop believing in Christ. Don't stop pursuing a life of Christ-like holiness. Do we need to hear that from time to time here at Harvest Decatur? Do I need to say that more? As I get older, as I get longer in the tooth at preaching, I realize that my job is like 50% preaching new material and 50% encouraging you to keep doing what you're doing. Some days it's like 70-30. And that's, we need the encouragement to keep doing what we do. do. Keep, keep believing what we believe. Keep holding fast to those things that we already know. And it, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a natural encourager. Uh, I've had to grow in that. My son would tell you that I'm really skilled at giving lectures, but maybe not great at encouragement sometimes. My wife is a good encourager. Ryan Jackson is a good encourager. Some of you are good encouragers. Can I tell you something though? I feel like I've grown in this and I've prayed for this and I feel like this is a gift that's maybe dormant in my heart that's starting to emerge and I realize how important this is to encourage, to stand before you on Sundays and more than just preach new material or give you some fun Greek words is to say, don't quit Harvest Decatur. Don't quit on what you're doing. Press on. Be faithful to the Lord. Things are going to get hard, but God is with you. God is behind you. God is pleased with what you are doing. He is. He is. Here's some ways that we're tempted to give up. Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good things. Here, here are some good things. So I'll give you a list of four that we're tempted to grow weary doing. Here's the first one. These are in your notes. You can write them down. The first one is, is evangelism. It's one of our pillars. We believe in it. Sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. But I think, yeah, we're tempted at times to quit sharing our faith. You, I, I know how it is. You share your faith and it doesn't take and you can get discouraged. You, you can quit or, or think that you're not good at that. Or I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not even going to try. Don't give up, Harvest Decatur. Don't give up on sharing the good news of Jesus with the boldness. With boldness, there is, there's, the payoff is too great when someone does come to the Lord to give up on that. And this is part of our duty. Here's a second thing I think we can grow weary doing, praying. I think we were tempted to lose heart with prayer. Prayer for our country. Prayer for our family members. Prayer for our community. Prayer for Decatur. Prayer for lost people. Prayer for our church. Pray, pray, pray. Is there anywhere in the New Testament that prayer is emphasized more than in First and Second Thessalonians? 
I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure God didn't have us work through these books, lead me to preach these books so that he would fire up the prayer inside of our church. Because we see Paul prayer and we see pray and we see Paul encourage us to pray. And it's good. And Paul closes the book with prayer. We'll get to that in just a second. Here's the third thing that we can grow weary with. Loving people. You could cross out the loving and just write people if you want to. We can grow weary and honestly a little jaded sometimes with people. Every time a discipleship opportunity falls flat or a person you put some time into fails you or disappoints you, it's disheartening. You're tempted to give up on the Great Commission. You're tempted to give up on people. Every time there's a personal betrayal, every time there's a matter that requires repentance and forgiveness, you're tempted to quit. And Paul says, don't quit. Don't give up on doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. It's easy to lose heart with people. You know why it's easy to do that? Can I tell you why? Because those people out there are just like us. Am I right? We the people are the problem. And maybe it's helpful to think back in your own life on someone who didn't quit on you, on a parent who put up with you when you weren't the greatest disciple in the world, when somebody encouraged you and didn't quit, even though it might have been easier in those moments to quit on people and quit on loving people. Jesus never gave up on you. Jesus never gave up on humanity at large. So you don't give up on people either. Here's a fourth thing that we can grow weary with. We can grow weary with pursuing holiness. We, we fight for for holiness and we lose. We move three steps forward and then we take two steps back. And it is a fight. We think that we got that, that sin killed. I was sharing some things with my small group this last week. We think we got that sin killed and then all of a sudden it rears its ugly head again. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, whack, whack, whack. They just keep coming back. Just keep whacking them. Can I share something with you? Can I disclose something really personal this morning? When I was in Croatia for Christmas, over New Year's actually, I got really, really good at that game, Plants versus Zombies. Really good. I was the envy of my nephews. I was so good at it. And I'm not proud of that. I'm a little proud of that, okay? I mean, that was, <laughs> it took some work to get good at that. You know what the problem with that game is? The zombies keep coming back again and again and again, and there's no end to it. And there's a little parallel there with the Christian life. They just keep coming back. 
The moles keep coming back. You whack them and they keep coming back. And this is the Christian life. This is the fight that we're in. This is the pursuit of holiness. And it goes on and on. And you might grow weary doing that. And Paul says, don't grow weary. Keep fighting. Keep pressing on. Remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. This is the will of God, your holification. God wants you to be holified, people. And this is a lifelong pursuit, and that's, what, that's why we have each other, to help in that process and grow and disclose and learn from each other. I think sometimes, you know, in this pursuit of holiness, sometimes it's good to just, whew, just take a deep breath. Why don't we do that just right now? Just always take a deep breath. And look back on what God has done in your life. And just just look at the ways that he's given you victory over sin, victories in certain areas of your life, victories in answered prayer. and, and, And in the midst of that, just praise God. Thank you for this, Lord. Thank you for how far I come. I still got so far to go, and that can be overwhelming sometimes, but thank you for this. Thank you for this trajectory of holiness in my life. I do have a long way to go, but I've come so far. Praise you, Lord. And see if that doesn't give you a little bit of steam to continue fighting for holiness in your life. And then after you do that, after you take a deep breath, after you look back and you see what God has done, then then get back to work putting to death the deeds of your flesh. Amen, church? This is good. This is a good thing. And God loves it when we're committed to that. He loves it. And he gives us grace to do that. So do not grow weary in doing good, harvest decator. That's Paul's encouragement. Here's the final command. Write this down as number two in your notes. Paul says in verse 14, let me summarize it here. Protect the spiritual health of the church. Protect the spiritual health of the church. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, verse 14, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, this is a tough command here. This is, you know, this is not like ending your letter with pleasantries, you know, greet so-and-so and and greet so-and-so and everything is hunky-dory. This this is a bit severe. This, this is uncomfortable for us, I think, in our relativistic anything goes era. Paul says, if anyone ignores what we say in this letter, keep your distance from them, ostracize them even. Let them feel the full weight of their sinfulness so that they may be ashamed. And what's the goal in this? What's the goal in this, that they would simply be ashamed? No, not ultimately. The ultimate goal would be, this is the ultimate goal for church discipline as a larger subject, the goal is repentance. The goal is restoration, is change in behavior and returning to the the church in in good order. Let's just look at this a little bit more. Keep your fingers in 2 Timothy, one finger there anyway, and turn with me to Matthew 18. 
Just flip over a few pages before this to Matthew 18, and let's look at this parallel text on church discipline, because Jesus gives us some instructions there that are really, really important. And I want you to turn there in your Bibles and maybe even make a note in your Bibles so that you have this in the future to reference. Because here's what Jesus says in verse 15. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, keep it private. There's private confrontation, if you want to use that word, with another person who sins. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the, that's the best case scenario. Somebody sins against you, you come to them and say, hey, you know, this such and such happened. You shouldn't have done that. That's not right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Restoration, everything's good. That's, that's best case scenario. And, and that's, that's what God would have the church be like, a place where there is health and restoration and, and even repentance when there's sin. Instead of just wallowing in sin or instead of sinning and everybody just being like, oh, no big deal. We all sin. It's not that big a deal. No, but Jesus instead would want us to confront it, repent, and then be restored. Now, I wonder, you know, there were people in Thessalonica that were struggling with idleness. You remember this last week? And one of the things that I said last week is that a best case scenario is that they come before the church, read Paul's letter, 2 Thessalonians, and those people that were idle there, they heard what Paul said and immediately they repented and they were restored. We don't know. There's no 2 Thessalonians. We don't know if that happened. There's no, sorry, there's no 3 Thessalonians. There is 2 Thessalonians. There's no next chapter to this to know what happened when Paul read, when they read Paul's letter. There were also people in the church who were engaged in false teaching, teaching that Jesus had already come back and that the church had missed the day of the Lord. Paul addresses that in 2 Thessalonians. Some of those people in the church were outed when they read that letter. And so best case scenario is similar to what we see in Matthew 18. They repented, they were restored. That's the best case scenario. But Jesus says this. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 16, but if he does not listen, and you guys know this sometimes happens, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, somebody who's outside of the church. Now I know just Jesus said that. Jesus said that, our Lord. And I know even reading that right now, it feels totally countercultural in our day. Sometimes obedience in the church is countercultural. And why does Paul tell, tell us to do this in 2 Thessalonians? Why does Jesus want us to do this? Confront sinners in the church, even ostracize unrepentant sinners? It's to protect the health of the church, it's to protect the purity of the church. It's to protect the reputation of the church before outsiders. And I would say this too, it's the best thing, confrontation for the unrepentant person. 
It's the best thing for them to deal with that sin and turn from it because sin is destructive. You choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And whether it's idleness or or false teaching or sexual immorality or divisiveness in the church, God does not want us to turn a blind eye to those things that are blatantly and unashamedly sinful. He wants us as a church to deal with them and to protect the spiritual health of the church. Now here's the caveat. You can turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 with me. Because here's how Paul qualifies this command. He says in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy. You're doing this out of love. You're not, this is not combative because you're attacking an enemy. Do not regard this person that you're confronting as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We don't treat an unrepentant sinner like, a, like an enemy. They're not our enemy. We don't despise them. We don't hate them. We don't withhold the full offer of restoration and repentance to them. If they repent, they're not our enemy. They are a brother, sister in Christ. And it's because of our love for them as brother and sister in Christ that we confront them, that we deal with the sin. The loving thing to do is to warn a brother. The loving thing to do is convey to them the seriousness of their sin and how it's hurting them and the church. The loving thing to do is to not enable them. The loving thing to do is to not overlook their blatant sinfulness. But we don't treat them as an enemy. We love them as a brother. Let me give you an example. Maybe this will help to illustrate this. If you had a friend who was walking headlong into a volcano, let's say. Surely you would warn that person against that, wouldn't you? If you love them, surely you wouldn't agree to go with them. Surely you wouldn't pretend like there's no danger at all in doing that. To each his own, go ahead, jump into the volcano. And also surely when that person comes to their senses and comes back into the fold and turns away from the volcano, you would welcome them back in. Right? That's what we're talking about here. Okay, let's get practical here. I know with stuff like this, we're talking church discipline, we're talking about confrontation of sin, things can get really messy really fast. Am I right? They can't. And things aren't always as cut and dried as what I'm describing here when it comes to church discipline. So here's, here's my advice, okay? Let's try as best we can to obey what Jesus says and practically work this out. If you know someone here at Harvest Decatur who is stuck in a pattern of blatant sin, who is unrepentantly sinning over and over again, in the spirit of Matthew 18, you should address that with them privately. Let's say someone's having an affair or cheating on their spouse. Unfortunately, that happens in churches. If that's happening and you know about it, you should speak with that brother, you should speak with that sister, not in a spirit of condemnation or malice, but love and concern. Remember Galatians 6.1, you can read this on the screen. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
And according to Jesus, if that person listens to you and repents, you've gained your brother back. Victory! That's best case scenario. That is, that's exactly what you want. Restoration. That's a wonderful thing when there's repentance and restoration and, and, and renewal. And it'd be great if all issues revolving sin ended like that. Confrontation, repentance. All right. We're in a good place. The spiritual health of the church has been protected. But if that person doesn't listen, then according to Jesus' words, you've got to elevate the situation. You've got to escalate the dilemma, the problem. And Jesus' words, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. First you deal with the matter privately and then with concentric circles you start to bring other people into it. Sometimes it's good. Uh, not sometimes, but what Jesus is talking about is having a third party there to address the situation, to protect you and to get advice from an outside person to, to counsel in that situation. And, and if, if you find yourself there, I would encourage you to find a, a spiritual leader, an elder, to be your witness, an elder's wife, a small group leader. I would encourage you to pick somebody who has a track record of wisdom in matters of counsel to go with you. I would encourage you to pick someone who will evaluate the situation objectively, so don't go get your family member, go get somebody else who will look at them and you objectively. Maybe you're pressing a gray issue on somebody. Maybe there's no sin involved in that. And as you bring in some witness, they're like, no, this is not what you think it is. That's been known to happen. And assuming you've done due diligence with that and with all these matters, what happens when it doesn't work according to Jesus? What happens when that sinning believer remains entrenched Refusing to turn from sin? Well, here's the nuclear option. Here's what Jesus says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I call this the nuclear option because this is a last-ditch effort to help this person to be restored. But if somebody is hell-bent on sin, refusing to admit their sin, they need to be removed from fellowship. More often than not, just being honest with you, more often than not what happens is that that person will just leave the church and they'll go somewhere else where their sin is tolerated. It's unfortunate in our day and age that there are so many unbiblical churches in a community. People will leave a church unceremoniously, join another church, perfectly willing to tolerate their sin. No questions asked, no problem. Let me state the obvious. That situation, something like that does not please the Lord. That is not good for the spiritual health of the church. Elders, let me talk to you for a minute. Paul, Ryan, George, Mike. One of our most difficult duties as elders is protecting the purity of the church. We have been tasked with this. We are in charge here at Harvest with doctrine, discipline, and direction. I'll just tell you the hardest of those three things as far as I'm concerned is discipline. 
is discipline. We are told in God's word to shepherd the flock of God that is among us, exercising oversight. And part of that, let me say this too, part of that involves policing ourselves as elders. A few days ago, the elders of Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago, they fired their senior pastor for behavior that was sinful and disqualifying. For the record, I think they were right to do that. And I think in light of that, all of us, elders and non-elders, should take heed lest we fall too. I think all of us, your senior pastor especially, should say, there but by the grace of God go I and watch our conduct and protect the purity of the church. So that's Paul's final command in this book. And here's how Paul closes this passage, this book. I think the severity of what he says in verses 14 through 15 may be the reason that he turns to prayer in verses 16 through 18. Paul turns to prayer and he prays two familiar things, for two familiar things to be manifested in the church in Thessalonica. He prays for grace and peace. Final prayer, write that down. May Jesus give grace and peace to the church. Let's talk about peace. First, Paul prays, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now two questions here, Harvest Decatur. I want you all to think about this. I'm going to give you two questions. The first question is going to be easy. Second question is going to be a little harder. Here's the first question concerning verse 16. Who is the Lord of peace? Who is it now? It's Jesus. He's the Lord of peace. He's the Prince of peace. Prophesied in the Old Testament. He's the one that bled and died to offer us peace with God He is the Lord of peace. Now here's the harder question. What is peace? What is peace? Specifically, what is the peace that the Lord of peace gives? Well, let me start by telling you what it's not. John MacArthur says the, world, the world's definition of peace goes like this. Peace is that sense of calm and tranquility and quietness and bliss and contentment and well-being that you feel when you believe that everything is well. Peace is that attitude of calm, that attitude of tranquility, that attitude of settled quiet that comes when you believe everything is the way you'd like it. Sounds pretty good, right? Sounds just peachy. Well, MacArthur calls this definition of peace shallow. And he says it's shallow because, frankly, 
calm feelings, tranquility, quietness, that can be produced by a pill. You can produce that with a lie. You can produce that with a deception. You can produce that with a nap. You can produce that by alcohol. Calm, peace, tranquility, a sense of well-being can produce when your old aunt dies and leaves you a fortune. Is that what Paul's praying for, that your old aunt would die and leave you a fortune? No. MacArthur says we're not talking about a human, fragile, circumstantial sense of calm, a calm induced by a drug. We're talking about something completely different. We're talking about a spiritual peace, a, a spiritual peace, that true deep down peace is the attitude of the heart and mind that calmly, confidently believes and thus knows that all is well between the soul and God. According to MacArthur, peace is the presence of a calm assurance built on the knowledge that my sins are forgiven. It is the peace that God gives to his beloved children. It is their possession and their privilege by right. The reality is that peace is an attribute of God. God is perfectly at peace all the time. And he gives us this peace. And you don't get peace, not this kind of peace, without getting it from God. And that's why Paul prays for God to give it, to give it to the church. That's why Paul prays for the Lord of peace to give you peace at the end of Second Thessalonians. That's why Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's a peace that pers- surpasses understanding. In other words, it doesn't really make sense to the human mind. You can't rationalize it. It surpasses understanding. It's a peace that comes to the one who knows in the depth of their being that God is sovereign and that God is in control of everything that happens in our world and nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not life, not death, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not heights, not depths, not anything else in all creation. That's the peace. And you might say, okay, Tony, well, if we have this peace of Christ, I'm a believer, if we have this peace of Christ, why does Paul pray that this peace of Christ would be in us? Do we have it or do we not? Well, yeah, we have it, but sometimes that peace doesn't permeate every part of our being. Sometimes our emotions aren't in tune with the peace that we really have, and that's why Paul prays that they would have it, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way, in every part of your being. Some of you might say, Pastor Tony, my emotions are like a golden retriever. I say heal and they heal. I say roll over and play dead. They roll over and play dead. Well, that's great. I, I envy you that. My emotions are more like a well-trained cat sometimes. I say heal and they turn around and lick themselves. That's what they do. And so I, I need this prayer. I need this prayer from the Apostle Paul. I need this prayer from you and from others in my small group. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way that it would sink down into the deepest part of your being. Paul prays that the church in Thessalonica would have this peace in Christ, even in the midst of trials and struggles and shortcomings. 
And that's his prayer for us too. That's, that's my prayer for Harvest Decatur. That the Lord of peace would give us peace and would be with us and also grace. Paul says in verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. If you remember that there were these forgeries going around that, you know, people were writing. They said it was from the Apostle Paul, Second Thessalonians 2. Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So ostensibly there were these fake letters going around that people said came from the Apostle Paul. So Paul says at the end of 2 Thessalonians, this letter is legit, people. This, I'm, I'm writing it with my own hands. My signature is here. You can see my handwriting. I wish we had original copies of this letter because we could see Paul's handwriting. By the way, there are times when Paul used a secretary, what's called a, an amanuensis, to write his letters for him. But conceivably here, he wrote Second Thessalonians with his own hand, so it couldn't be dismissed as a forgery. And Paul closes this letter. Look at verse 18 with this doxology. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. At the beginning of this letter, Second Thessalonians 1, 2, Paul said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he closes this letter with a prayer for peace and a prayer for grace. By the way, at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, Paul began that book by saying, Grace to you and peace, Thessalonians. Paul closed that book with a similar statement in chapter 5, verse 23 about peace. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And a few verses later, he made a statement about grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, 1 Thessalonians is bookended by grace and peace. Likewise, 2 Thessalonians is bookended with grace and peace. Do you think grace and peace are a big deal to Paul? I think they mean a lot to him. We talked about peace already, why that's important. Why grace? Why grace? Here's how one person described the glory of God's grace. What a grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Y'all ever heard that before? Here's how another person describes grace. I'm pretty sure y'all have heard this before. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. 
the hour I first believed. Do you have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ living in you? Do you now? Paul prays at the end of this book, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a little reminder at the end of this book that we're not saved by works. We're not saved because we're so good. We're not saved because we're so special. We're saved because God is good and God has given us grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But God offers it to you. He offers you freedom. And he offers you forgiveness of your sins through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul closes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's my prayer too. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Let's bow in a word of prayer together and then we can sing about grace. Yes, Lord, we come before you undeserving sinners. Not saved by works. Lord, it's the truest, most beautiful thing in the world. That you loved us and you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. And that we, by faith, in that finished work, can be saved. And Lord, we thank you for your, your unmerited favor of us. God, we pray in light of 2 Thessalonians that the grace that has saved us will change us and sanctify us and make us more like you. just quiet our hearts before the Lord right now. Can we do that? Let's not be in a hurry to sing or to leave this room. I encourage you to acknowledge before the Lord your identity as a sinner that has fallen short by your works. But saved 
by the grace of God. Just own that right now. Just pray that back to the Lord. Pray it as a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for saving a wretch like me. Amen.